Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt and a fowl of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from the Nazareth of Galilee. Good evening, family. It's 61 years before Christ. And I want, to ima- I want you to imagine yourself as a citizen in the city of Rome. And the city around you is absolutely alive today. It's, it's been jubilant. For the past three days, because one of the greatest emperors of your time, a man named Gnaeus Pompey, has returned from what would become the province of Asia Minor. He has been victorious in battle, and for three days now, there have been parades, after parades, after parades. And you've heard songs, and heard stories, and you have seen... uh, miniature models of cities and fortresses and palaces carried through the streets of Rome. And you know these are places that Pompey has triumphed over. These are places that Pompey has conquered. And they now belong to Rome. And you have seen heaps of treasure in this one campaign. Pompey brought in enough treasure to the city of Rome to cover the entire years taxes for the whole Roman world, not just the city, but the entire Roman world for a year. That's enough gold to keep millions of people alive for an entire year. You have smelled the these strange and wonderful smells of, of incense and perfume and, and flowers and, and aromatics from faraway places that you've only ever heard stories about. Flowers are covering the street, and the people are clamoring around you, trying to climb on top of structures and lean out of windows and climb on top of roofs. You've got children on the shoulders of their parents and people trying to push out of the way because you hear the sound of hooves. And in the distance, you can see a man cresting over a hill, and in front of him, hundreds of people in strange clothing that you've never seen before. People who look very different from what you're used to. And they're bound in chains. 
These people might have been commoners, they might have been royalty, but now they are slaves of Rome. And behind them are soldiers from the enemy armies being forced to reenact the moment of their defeat, play-acting with Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers are singing songs of their victory, singing songs about Pompey. And as the horses draw near, four white stallions pulling a chariot. And in that chariot stands a man, not in Roman armor, but in classical Greek armor. You see, Pompey was being styled after Alexander the Great. And a cry goes up from the crowd, Pompey Magnus, Pompey Magnus, Pompey Magnus. Pompey the Great. And as the red cloak flows behind him, there is a slave standing in the chariot with him. Pompey wears the victor's crown, and the slave holds a wreath over his head. And if you could get close enough, you could hear the slave whisper, Remember, you're only mortal. You are just a man. Because in these moments... The fear was these people would believe that they were more than what they were and that all this was for them. But their moment would soon be over. You see, that's what a triumph is. In the first century mind, a triumph, the nature of triumph, is to display one's own greatness through wealth, victory, and dominance. And these stories would be spread throughout the Roman Empire in stories and in songs and minted on coins so that everybody, no matter what your literacy rate or where you lived, you knew about the Roman triumph. Matthew chapter 21. Let's read this again. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. This is Jesus, his disciples, the apostles. Bethphage is an area around the Mount of Olives. It's about two miles from the city of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. Then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, that would be Bethany, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Then the disciples went and did as Jesus said, as he had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds went before him, and that followed and were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Another way this could be translated is the whole city was shaken. The word here has the, the context of an earthquake. This is a huge moment in Jerusalem. And the people were saying, who 
is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's not a triumph. To understand this, it's helpful to look at this from the perspective of the different parties involved here. So let's, let's look at this from the perspective of Jesus' disciples. See, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on the first day after the, the Sabbath. So it would be a Sunday. Traditionally, it's called Palm Sunday in some Christian traditions. And on this day, it's, it's the week before the most important religious festival for the Jewish people. It's, the city is being filled with Jewish pilgrims and proselytes from all over the Roman world. Uh, in some sources, it says that Jerusalem on feast days would go from a city of, of maybe about a quarter of a million, so a little less than Chattanooga, to well over a million and a half people. On feast days, it would be more populous than the city of Rome itself. You've got people pouring in from everywhere. But one thing you didn't often see on festival days or days leading up to feasts were beasts of burden. You see, they were kept outside the city because the city was so crowded, and it was seen as a little bit improper to bring an animal into the city during festival times. But Jesus... When he gets up on that donkey, he triggers a recognition in the minds of the disciples. You see, the people that surround Jesus, the Jewish people as a whole, they've been looking for a Messiah since before Israel was Israel. And so they've been searching their scriptures and they've, they've found things in them that point to the one who is to come. And when Jesus gets on this donkey, he triggers a recognition. The first one found in 2 Samuel, chapter 15. 2 Samuel, chapter 15. In verse 30, King David has, has just been victorious over his son Absalom in a, in a civil war that had Israel split for some time. But David, verse 30 here, went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and his head covered, and the people who were with him covered his heads, covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. The story continues as, as David approaches, gets to the Mount of Olives. He's met by a man named Ziba. And Ziba has something. So go over to chapter 16, verse 2. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Uh, sorry, go back to verse chapter 1. And Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, uh, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled and bearing 200 loaves of bread and 100 bunches of raisins and 100, uh, and 100 summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine is for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. See, from this point on, it's, it's, it was understood that David would enter into the city on the back of a donkey. 
And this was kind of uh, became a little bit of a motif for the people of Israel. This was a, a theme that they looked for, was for a king to come into the city riding on a donkey. Now, the second thing is over in, is in 2 Kings. Chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9, we have the one of the servants of Elijah, or Elisha, sorry, and he is taking one of his one of the servants, one of the sons of one of the other prophets, and he sends them to a place called Ramoth Gilead. And in Ramoth Gilead, he sends him to this man named Jehu. And along about verse 13, we find this servant, he has, he has, he has run to Jehu, he has called him into a room by himself, he anoints his head with oil, he tells him, you're the king of Israel, and he leaves. Uh, so let's, let's start actually in verse 11. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know this fellow and his talk. And they said, that's not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. The third example comes, comes from outside the Bible, but in a time of Israel's history, kind of between the Testaments, in a time where there was no inspirational writing, but there was a good deal of historical writing. There's a man named Simon Maccabeus. And after a, a Greek nation had taken control of the, the nation of Israel, they were occupying the city of Jerusalem, and Simon and his army came and besieged the city, drove out the Greeks, and when he enters into the city the people begin cutting branches out of the trees and throwing them in front of Simon. And so, what the people of, of Jesus' circle, his disciples, what they're doing, they see Jesus do something that they believe is something that the king is going to do. And so then they start treating him as a man they understand is going to be their king. This is the one. This is the one who is going to save us. He's going to come in, and he's going to drive out the evil leaders. He's going to restore order. He's going to conquer Israel's enemies. He's going to make us great again. He's going to fix everything. And they're right. But they're also so, so wrong. Let's look at this. Let's look at the shouts. What, what are they saying to Jesus as he is entering the city? Turn over to Psalm 18. Sorry, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 in Israel's history was a, was a song that was often sung around different festival times. This was a, a song praising God, and in verses 25 and 26, we see where these, these disciples, where they're pulling their praises from, or at least part of their praises. They say, save us, which is the meaning of Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
We bless you, the house of the Lord. Someone who comes in the name of the Lord, to the Jewish people, that's no small thing. That is, that is divine authority being given to this individual. So, as the people of, as the disciples of Jesus are, are heaping these praises upon Jesus, it's no small thing to call him the son of David. Because David is the, he is the ideal king. He is the origin point of so much of Israel's symbolism and their expectations of what a good king should be and who the Messiah will be. And as they, they say, Hosanna to him, Hosanna takes on a different connotation. And it, over time, when we look at the way Israel uses Hosanna, it's not just a cry of save us, but it's also a cry of praise to the one they see is able to save. So it carries a double meaning, one of salvation and one of praise. So the expectation of the disciples is that this is the Messiah. He will be our king, and he will save us. He will cast out our enemies. He's going to oust the Romans. He's going to get rid of the Herodians. And he's going to sit on David's throne, and he's going to make us a great power again. Let's look at this event from the perspective of the Jerusalemites, the people living in Jerusalem at this time. It would have been no small thing to hear people singing praises as they enter the city. But again, as I said earlier, it would be a bit of a strange thing to see somebody riding on a donkey. And again, this individual riding on the donkey is going to kind of draw the attention of the people around him. And as the people are singing around this individual, it's going gonna, it's gonna to catch some attention. Some wanted, maybe some unwanted. When the people of Jerusalem begin questioning who this individual is, they say, who is this? And they're met with what to us seems a very factual answer. But to them would have been a very strange, exciting, and possibly scary one. You see, the people, the disciples answer the people of Jerusalem saying that this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That doesn't seem very strange to us. But when the people of Israel were looking for a Messiah, go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you, this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired for the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see the great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have said. I will raise up 
for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so from this point on, the people of Israel begin looking for a prophet. And there's, there's times where they think, is, is this the guy? Is this the guy? Is this the one that we've been waiting for? Well, he's not like Moses. Nobody was ever quite as good as Moses in the mind of the, of the Jewish people. And so the expectation was never quite met. But when they said, this is the prophet, Jesus, there's a possibility that when they heard the prophet, they didn't just hear eh, the prophet Jesus but the prophet. And let's not forget that Jesus, in their language, is Yeshua, the same as Joshua. You know, the guy who kicked out the Canaanites and helped establish Israel as a kingdom. So this begins to kind of carry a greater and greater symbolic weight that this is the prophet we've been waiting for. Maybe he's going to be like Joshua. But then they're kind of hit with something they don't quite expect. He's from Nazareth in Galilee. And that's a little bit like saying, oh, he's from Knob Noster County, West Virginia, and he's going to fix all our problems. It's like, really? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, really? Because they're expecting this person to come from Bethlehem, but they don't know the full story, do they? And so... Nazareth carries this connotation of being kind of, for the Jewish people, it's hillbilly country. This is like way back, far away from really, truly civilized country. Nazareth is the middle of nowhere. Add to that, it's in Galilee. And that's got its own set of problems for people in Jerusalem. I think a lot of times when we think of the Jewish people, we think of Israel. Israel is one place, right? Not quite. In the first century, Israel was kind of cut into pieces because it was part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had a really nasty habit of carving lines where lines didn't exist. And so, when Herod the Great died, they didn't want to give all of their territory over to Herod's son. Because he had several sons and they didn't want a civil war breaking out. So what you do is you take the most important piece for yourself. And so they carved out Judea and they put a... Roman governor over it. And a series of Roman governors had ruled it over a period of about 30-some years. And now there's a guy in charge named Pontius Pilate. And then we're going to carve out this little section up north called the Galilee, and we're going to give it to Herod's oldest surviving son. I say surviving because Herod, um, as one Roman writer put it, it is better to be Herod's pig than to be his son because he's not going to kill the pig. So... Herod's oldest surviving son is now in charge of Galilee. That makes Galilee outside of the direct Roman influence of Pontius Pilate. And if you are in Jerusalem, you're kind of you're kind of buddy buddy with the Romans as much as you can be. You don't like them, but man, you're you're kind of your your livelihood depends on them. And now you're saying that this prophet is from where? He's from Herod's country? Ooh, that's going to be a problem. Because that's, that's the kind of thing that, that, that starts civil wars. And this guy, he's going to come in here and he's going to cause all kinds of problems. And, you know, and then he comes into the temple and he starts kicking over tables. This guy's going to turn everything upside down. He's going he's gonna to really change things. We, we can't have a guy like this. He's dangerous. And they're wrong. 
But in a way, they're right. So let's look at this from the perspective of Jesus. What is he doing? Jesus is not entering in triumph. There has been no war. There has been no campaign. There has been no territory or treasure or slaves taken. He's not interested in the trappings of a triumph. If you read through this in in English or Greek or whatever, you're not going to find the word triumph except in this little traditional heading at the top that people put there. God didn't put triumph in there. People did. Because people who came from sort of a Roman background, they see this and they go, ah, it's a triumph. No, it's not. It's not a triumph. This is something so much more. What Jesus is doing is fulfilling Scripture. Turn over to Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 was long considered to be one of like the key verses. When looking for the Messiah, this is what we're looking for. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew almost directly quotes this. I say almost because he leaves out righteous and having salvation is he. Why would he leave that out? We'll get back to that. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, when he's in the Mount of Olives, when he's in Bethphage, he deliberately seeks out the cult of a donkey because he knows that he needs to fulfill Scripture. This is deliberate on his part. Jesus didn't walk all the way from Nazareth to get two miles away from Jerusalem and go, poof, I'm tired. I'm going to ride on a donkey the rest of the way in. These last two miles, they're killer. There's a real deep valley there. I can't do that. I need need something to ride on. No, he is doing this deliberately, intentionally, with symbolic purpose. He doesn't choose a stallion. He doesn't choose an animal of war. He chooses a, a... not just an an... like, not just a juvenile animal, but an animal that is associated with peacetime. Because you don't use a donkey during war. You use a donkey during a time of peace when you can plow your fields. And so Jesus takes this foal of a donkey and he rides it through the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And and it would help to kind of picture Jerusalem in your mind. I know you don't have an exact map of Jerusalem in your mind from the first century. I haven't quite memorized that yet either. But imagine Jerusalem being right about here. And in the southeast corner, you're going to have the temple compound. And this is, you've got the temple, and you've got the, the temple square, and then you've got the court of the women, and you've got the court of the Gentiles, and you've got the wall around that. And it's this huge area of, uh, in the middle of Jerusalem, kind of on this outside edge, on this, this high point of the city. It is the focal point of Jerusalem. And if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, it perfectly frames the city. When you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you're looking right at the house of God. You're looking right at 
the, for the Jews, the temple is, is the line between heaven and earth. It's where heaven and earth intersect. You know, you've got north, south, east, and west, and then up and down, that intersection between heaven and earth is the temple. That's where God is. And so when you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you can see that just across the Kidron Valley. And so Jesus gets on the donkey, and everyone knows what's about to happen. Or at least they think they do. And they start singing praises, and they're a little bit off in their understanding, but Jesus allows it to continue. Because really and truly, he is the son of David. He is the one who is able to save. So they might be wrong in their understanding, but they are right to praise him for who he is. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through 5. I had mentioned how when David comes into the city, he came from the Mount of Olives on a donkey into the city. But I don't think Jesus is deliberately imitating David here. I think he's imitating somebody greater. In Ezekiel chapter 43, starting in verse 1, Ezekiel says, Then he, that is the Lord, led me to the gate, the gate facing east. The gate facing east would be the one that would lead you to the temple most directly. And behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel, was coming from the east. What's to the east? The Mount of Olives. There's this hill, and if God's presence is coming from over the Mount of Olives, it's coming towards this east gate. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when I, he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by the Cherbal Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. After Jesus enters Jerusalem, where does he go? He goes to the temple. He goes to his father's house, and that's where he begins to set things right. By casting out the money changers, by driving out the animals... His house, his father's house, was a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. Jesus chooses to show humility. Jesus had every right to come into the city in all the triumph and glory that the earth has. And he chose a donkey. This story is so familiar, I think that kind of bounces off of us. The Son of God chooses, really the only deliberate act in this is is the direction that he goes, and he chooses a donkey. He doesn't tell him what to sing. He doesn't get dressed up. He comes in as humbly as he possibly can while still fulfilling Scripture. He's not struck a decisive blow against Israel's enemy, Rome. And he's not going to. I believe the reason why Matthew omits 
Righteous and having salvation is he. From this quotation from Zechariah is because it's not yet time for the salvation. Matthew understands that the salvation is to come. Jesus entering the city was not the point of salvation. The point of salvation was, at the, was the next Sunday. Not when Jesus enters the city, but when Jesus re-enters life. And that is the triumph. That is the moment where Christ comes in triumphant, having defeated the only real enemy any of us have ever had, sin and death. And he comes with the greatest treasure of all. He comes with salvation. His victory is not temporary. His victory is not gold or slaves. His victory is salvation. It is the presence of God for all eternity as co-heirs with Christ. This entry isn't about fixing political temporary problems. It's not about fixing the economy or about getting rid of people that, that other people don't like. See, the thing is, Jesus isn't going to kill the Romans. He's not going to go to war against the people because one of the issues about having salvation, you can't go around killing people if you're going to save them. To save these people, Jesus is going to have to give up his life. And he's going to have to disappoint some people along the way. Jesus knew what they expected of him. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of man. And he knew that he was going to disappoint them. Because he had something far greater to do. Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, or any affection and sympathy, complete my joy... By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in the full accord and one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews chapter 12.
The Hebrews writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and seated on the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus humbles himself in order to be exalted. It is necessary for the humility to take place in order to be exalted. If Jesus had not humbled himself, where would we be? Because Jesus got up on that fold, he was misunderstood by the crowds, by his disciples, by his apostles, his closest friends. And for some, their anger and disappointment led to cries from Hosanna to the son of David to crucify him. And he was crucified as an innocent sacrifice. And he was buried and raised having righteousness and salvation because humility is the victory. The resurrection is the triumph. He is not just a man. He is the immortal Son of God. And he offers his victory to you. But here's the catch. We don't get to put qualifications on the Messiah. We don't get to tell God what to do or who, she, or who he should be or how he should think or the way things are going to be. We have to humble ourselves and accept God as God and Christ as our Lord. The victory is his. And it's a victory won through humility. And if we want part of that victory, we have to humble ourselves too. Jesus would later go on to say, after going in, cleansing the temple, having his authority challenged, he would say in, uh, let's see. Later in chapter 21, he would tell the, the people who were challenging him that all who, all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That holds true for him, and it holds true for his people. We have to we have to let him turn everything upside down in our lives. Be willing to turn our lives completely over to Jesus. We have to humble ourselves, and that means following the will of God, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's painful, even when we don't want to. 
That means we might have to do without things that we feel like we deserve. Jesus deserved all the glory this earth had to offer, and he turned it down for a donkey. He turned it down for a cross. He turned it down for you and me. And we have to sacrifice for the good of others. And if we're not doing that, we're not doing the will of our Father. If you want to take part in that victory, if you want to have the, the richness and eternal glory of heaven, there's a way to do it. You've heard the word. Believe it. Confess the name of Jesus. Repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And live in such a way that it honors Christ as King of your life. If you have made that confession, if you have been into the waters of baptism, but maybe you've thought that the burden of humility is a little bit too heavy. Maybe I deserve a little bit more than those around me. But the example of Christ convicts you to humble yourself. Please, we pray that you would come forward. Repent of your sins. We will pray with you. We will love you. We will hug you. And we will cry with you. Because we love you. Please join us as we stand together and sing.